Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Code Pink standing in protest against war in Ukraine with street actions and a Valentine's Day poetry reading and a lot more. Also, we're hoping to talk to two Oakland teachers hunger striking to save their neighborhood schools. And award-winning photojournalist David Bacon talks about his new traveling exhibition, Communities and Their Social Justice Movements. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We come to you every weekday from 5 to 6 Pacific time over the Pacifica Radio Network here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's KPFA. And we are welcoming this week KPFK in Los Angeles. Uh, happy to have you all along down there. Uh, we begin today, uh, as I stated in the uh, billboard, with um resistance uh, to war and it seems I, I guess if you pay attention to the corporate media and to the generals and to the uh, uh, sort of democratic cheerleaders for war because uh, they're it's the Democrats uh, leading us to war again it, we're we're on the brink. I'm uh, not sure really what's going on. We've been tracking it with a whole bunch of uh, folks who've been following the region for a long time, and there's a lot of confusion. Uh, and what we don't need, uh, according to our next guest, is a war. Uh, Jody Evans is a co-founder of Code Pink, and Cynthia Papermaster uh, keeps things lively here in the San Francisco Bay Area in terms of Code Pink. We are uh, happy to have both of you along, and we're delighted uh, I'm delighted, and a whole bunch of other folks are delighted to be participating with Code Pink in a poetry reading. So, welcome. Uh, and let me start with you, Jody. What's going through your mind now? We just finished a 20 year violent occupation. The people in Afghanistan are starving uh, in, in uh, having a great deal to do with our policy. And here we go war again? Yes, it's rather insane, Dennis, and uh, thank you for raising this up right now because we, you know, it's heartbreaking any way you look at it. Look at what we're doing to the people in Palestine, and thank God that Amnesty International has finally come out and said, as President Carter did almost 20 years ago, that it's an apartheid. And then you've got Afghans, you know, starving to death because the United States won't release funds that belong to them so the people can be fed and instead they today we heard that biden wants to divert it to 9-11 victims even though afghanistan had nothing to do with the towers the twin towers coming down that that was saudi arabia and then you this constant drumbeat for war at china where we're watching abuse of a medal-winning, brilliant skier, skier, Eileen Gu, being beaten up by male journalists um, because she chose to ski for China. And then you, then you are listening to, and, and, you know, just today, the Ukrainian said, please stop this. No war on Ukraine. And the people of Ukraine saying, please, you superpowers, 
back down. And, you, you know, we, we see that the U.S. Um, is pushing uh, to break its agreement that was made with Russia around NATO not moving closer. And we're surprised that Russia is responding with troops on the border. And who's suffering? are already the people in Ukraine. I was in Iraq when Bush said, the game is over, we're going to shock and awe on Iraq. And two weeks before they were bombed, I watched the... The server. Well, we're losing you, Jody. Can you, could you tilt your head a little bit? We're, we're losing your voice there. Sorry. Oh, uh, sorry. Um... You know, people that were, how do you imagine war coming sometimes can be worse because everyone is in terror. While we're bombing, our bombs are dropping on Yemen. I mean, it's horrific what we are doing. And we're using the the day that we think about love, Valentine's Day, to remind us to stop funding weapons and war and instead turn our hearts to love and care and cooperation. Uh, let me ask you to think out loud a little bit. And how do you make sense? We have, on the one hand, uh, we, we've got the Democrats leading us into another war, and at home, there's there was the insurrection, and those folks are still active. Uh, and armed. Uh, we see the incredible attempt to remove the rights of voters in so many states. We're talking about black and brown voters, young voters. You know, it's uh, Jim Crow uh, 2022. Um, it, uh, to the war, a lot of the a lot of the folks, there were a lot of military in the attempted insurrection. A lot of the 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 young people who are trained to go to war they come back killers <laughs> instead of being trained to to you talk about love between people oh and and then everybody's surprised that they come back and they they use this the automatic weapon to start shooting their neighbors their wives their friends it, it's something has really gone awry here in terms of the the permanent war culture wouldn't you say Judy? Oh, yes. And we warned of this when we started Code Pink 20 years ago, that we warned that these wars come home to our community just as they did after Vietnam. And I live in Los Angeles, and I saw the war come home, how it was expressed itself in Watts. And I saw gang members' fathers had been in the war in Vietnam and used as fodder for an illegal, immoral unconstitutional war and here we were going to do it again in Iraq. Yes, our tax dollars, our hard-earned money is used to fuel fascism, militarism, and violence. And what do you think is going to happen when you teach people to other and to kill and to murder and to be inhuman? What is you going to what do you think is going to happen when they come home? That's right. Our Police departments were already bad, but they are worse. We, we now have military weapons in the streets of the cities of the United States. We have them aimed at citizens of the United States. But, you know, war makes the rich richer. Weapons make the rich richer. All of this is 
is immoral, irrational, and, and only going to lead to devastation. But as we saw at COP26, I was with a bunch of 20-year-olds in the street, and they looked at the 200 leaders of the world and said, they don't care anything about the people. And that's true about how we're behaving around the planet, and it is true how we behave around war. This is about the rich getting richer. It is not about the people. It, look, right now, with this, what's happening with Ukraine, in the United States, members of both parties, it is the Koch brothers' own poll that shows that 80% of the people in the United States do not want this. Ukrainians do not want this. Russians do not want this. this these are leaders. I mean, the, the woman... Um, Victoria Nuland, who works for Biden, she was the one that uh, engineered the 2014 Ukrainian coup, along with McCain. She's married to neocon Robert Kagan, and she's, you know, wants a catastrophic war with Russia that she's wanted for the last 10 years. And she's got her hand on the, the trigger. And now we're talking about nuclear countries we are talking about russia and china and the u.s we lied about weapons of mass destruction with iraq but we're i mean russia and the united states are armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons four of those nuclear weapons go off we are in a nuclear winter and that is a climate change no one survives from because nothing will be able to grow that is the voice of Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink. Wonderful. It's her maiden voyage here on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, talking to us from Los Angeles. We're welcoming in the audience, uh, the live audience from Los Angeles, as uh, Flashpoints now is on daily at KPFK. We're happy. Also joining us from Code Pink is our own local hero working with Code Pink, my hero, Cynthia Papermaster. Uh, Cynthia, along with Jody Evans, have um, put together a wonderful poetry reading. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're going to sort of do a Valentine's Day celebration. Other things are going to go on, too. And, uh, Cynthia, give us a sense of um, uh, Valentine's Day activities uh, being planned by Code Pink. Well, thank you so much, Dennis, and you initiated this whole idea, so uh, our gratitude to you. We have uh, people who will be reading poetry on this Zoom call, and by the way, uh, to get an RSVP RSVP for this event, go to codepink.org, that's codepink.org, and you'll see right on the front page a a place where you can click an RSVP for this event, so it's 5 o'clock on Monday, Valentine's Day, and our readers are Joanna Macy, Anita Barrows, and together they've translated Rilke, uh, many volumes of Rilke. We have Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, who is the Poet Laureate of Berkeley, Kelly Curry, who is our Peace Economy Organizer, and Susan Griffin, the famous Susan Griffin author, Um, and Dennis, you will be reading, and Raymond Nat Turner. And Jennifer Hasegawa. We have a, a big lineup of poets, and um, we will also be showing our love for the people of Afghanistan, Yemen, Ukraine, Cuba, all of the places around the world where we really want to show our love and cooperation um, and not be so warlike toward those people. Thank you so much, Dennis. Well, I believe in poetry. I, 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 here's a story. I don't think I ever shared this on the air. 
my mom and her six sisters were all amazing women poets. They also, they ended up sort of running New York City by getting higher and higher scores on these civil service tests and took over all the institutions. But they all loved the word. They all wrote poetry. When my mom used to get ready for work in the morning... If I was lucky, she would let me help her put on her makeup, which she would refer to as her war paint, uh, because she was busy breaking glass ceilings. You know, her her version of resistance might be a very uh, powerful poem that could cut you left on the water cooler. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what happened to that raise, Mickey? Uh, and um, but I I, I learned. Uh, the power of the word, and, and it's, it's meant a great deal to me, and it's great to be able to have the synergy of political action uh, and poetry, which is really part, well, uh, my understanding, uh, and part about what uh, Code Pink is all about. Um, so, Jody, w- what do you think? Poetry an important part of this? Such an important part. What a great idea, Dennis. You know, because... For us to deal with what's happening, we have to be able to greet it from our hearts and to open our hearts and feel each other and connect. And, um, you know, it, it could think we, we have a, a, a couple like that, that we, we share. Um, roses are red. Economic warfare makes me blue. Let's lift U.S. sanctions so Afghan women's lives can start anew. Um, it. It, Code Pink, it's, it is all about the arts because we want to get into the space of creativity, in the space of love, in the space of connection, so that we don't get used by the warmongering out there that is so rampant in, in, our, in our days constantly. We, you know, we say we live in a war economy, the oppressive, destructive, extractive economy, and we work to connect with and be from the peace economy, the giving, sharing, caring, thriving, relational, resilient economy without which none of us would be alive so valentine's day is the day we can celebrate that connective tissue uh that makes us human and alive and precious to each other Again, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. That's right. We're talking about love and poetry here on Flashpoints, the hard-hitting frontline investigative radio show. And uh, I, I, I sort of think of poetry uh, as the other side of journalism. You know, the, the journalism is the news of the moment, uh, and the poem is the news of the eternity. Uh, and I, I'm still reading breaking news uh, being released by Rumi and Kabir from the 12th century. Uh, I'm still learning, but um, I. And so again, it's a it's a wonderful thing to be able to do some of that. Um, I do. Well, we have a couple of minutes left, and I, I we've been doing a lot of reporting on you know what's going on uh, in Afghanistan. You know, as the United States gets ready for another war, uh, starvation is like the thing, uh, and it's a result of incredibly misguided and vicious U.S. policy. Um, you want to? Each of you can take a shot. Do you want to say a word or two uh, about um, what's happening in Afghanistan? Well, I know you mentioned it before, but it's so crucial. Well, the Jody? news, Cynthia. Why don't you talk about? Yeah. 
Uh, I was just going to say the news today that that Biden is seizing the assets of the Afghan people um, and directing that money to 9-11 families. It's a heartbreaker. It's outrageous. Um, I I just I'm so under it today. Just seeing that news, it's it's really wrong. And Code Pink, if you go to CodePink.org, you'll see we have a petition to to Biden, etc., to to stop doing that. I mean, to, to change his mind about that. But go ahead, Jody. Well, yeah, not only that, we're working with attorneys to to turn this around. So we've been fighting um, for the last few months about unfreezing the Afghan assets. And there's so many ways to unfreeze them, bypass the government, and get the money to the needs of the people. We're working with the teachers' unions, with doctors and nurses, that there's, there's actual ways to get this money into the pockets of the needs of the people. And, you know, we even talking to people in Afghanistan, they they say there's there could be there there could be food to buy, but no one has any cash. It's literally been drained of money. And there are is all this money being held by the United States. Let's think about sanctions. This is a tool of war. And it is happening. And, you know, we think about war as bombs dropping. But really, the devastation of sanctions is so brutal. And they're used to try to affect people in power. But instead, they only devastate the lives of people. And right now, that means millions of Afghans are on the verge of starving to death. And that is the U.S. government. And that means everybody needs to be reaching out That's to fight horrific. it. It's 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 insanity. We're, it is cruelty we're, we're, at a level. But this we're is gonna happening come, uh, in Iran, in Cuba, in Venezuela. This is not. We this is cannot be allowed as a tool of war to starve people to death. It just it's unconscionable, and that we let that happen, and we call ourselves civilized. It is barbaric to starve an entire country. Right. That's barbarism. All right, and. And we're and we're going to come back to that. Uh, I am so glad, uh, Jody Evans, that uh, you and Code Pink are on top of that. Cynthia Papermaster, always a delight to have you uh, in this city, uh, keeping uh, us honest and telling us what's going on. And we got some politicians in this city to deal with. We're going to bring you both back to talk about a whole bunch more. But uh, check out the poetry. I guess you can just go to Code Pink. Is it dot org? For more info? Yes. Great. Thank you both. We're out of time. Thank you. We'll be back.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. And we are delighted uh, to welcome back an old friend of this show. Wonderful, uh, really wonderful reporter, photographer, um, just a, a very moving visual journalist who has uh, uh, used uh, the photo to tell us uh, all about the nature of suffering when it comes to being a farm worker uh, and trying to survive the policies on both sides of the border. Uh, for photographer David Bacon, the border region between the United States and Mexico is a land marked by life and death. Each year, at least 300 to 400 people die trying to cross into the U.S. in search of a better future for themselves and their families. The border is also bustling with life. The once small towns of Ciudad Juarez and Tijuana are now home to millions of people, many of whom make up the industrial workforce of Southern California, South Texas, and New Mexico. Taken over a period of 30 years, Bacon's photographs and accompanying text panels well, let me just say, this guy's work moves me. David Bacon, welcome back to Flashpoints. Uh, you're one of my all-time favorite uh, working photographers. Well, I'm glad this is radio, uh, so people can't see me blushing. <laughs> well, they're going to have to go uh, seek it out. And we're going to make sure before we let you go... Um, uh, where they, they can see all these pictures, uh, and you can say it right and, and, now, and maybe they'll go well, on. Go on. And, all, and also, even even before that, I do want to do like a shout out to your previous guest from Coink because the latest pictures I took were actually out in front of the ferry building where Code Pink was organizing a, a demonstration and a, actually a picketing of Nancy Pelosi's house calling for not going to war in Ukraine. And I think that there is, it takes courage to stand up in San Francisco and do that. And I, and I congratulate them and for the people who are supporting them and doing that. And I took their pictures and put them up on Facebook as a way of trying to say, hey, you know, let's all pay attention here before we wind up in a war that's going to be a real yes. disaster, an incredible disaster for all of us. So, at any rate, um, let, let yeah. me let me ask you to do this. Tell, tell us, uh, give us a little background. Tell us how you started taking photographs. You've been doing this a while. Yeah, and and as an example, you know the exhibition, the photographs that's going to be at the library starting tomorrow. Um, that one goes back about thirty years, and I've been taking years. pictures for maybe forty years. You know, so ten years before I started work on on this project, and it came out of what I did before, which was I was a union organizer. And so I began taking photographs as a, just a kind of a utilitarian thing where we would go out on strike at a factory in Oakland, say, and we would take pictures of people on the picket line and we'd joke around and say, hey, you know, take these pictures home and show your kids what you're doing for justice. And they, you're standing up and 20 years from now, you'll show them to your grandkids and they'll know what a hero or heroine you were. And it kind of took over because what the pictures and the photographs were documenting, Dennis, was something that we really talk about a lot, which is what happens to people of color, to workers of color, to women, and especially to immigrants um, here in the Bay Area and 
and all the way, way up and down the West Coast. And so I started realizing that these photographs were documenting important social movements and communities of people. And also it got me interested in um, what was happening, especially in Mexico, um, that was causing people to feel that they had no alternative but to leave home in order to come here and work in some of the hardest, dirtiest, most difficult jobs in the worst conditions and the lowest pay that we have here. And so that's what got me down to the border and then into Mexico. And that's what this current exhibition is about, really, is about the border, as you were saying in your in your introduction there. But that's where it came from, Dennis. It came out of being an activist. I'm a movement photographer or participant photographer, you know, which means that basically I don't do this by myself. I do this as part of the movements that I'm connected to. And the photographs have a purpose, which is to not just show the reality of, of life as it's lived by um, by working people and people of color and immigrants and, and the people who are the ones who make this world work, but also as, a, as tools that can be used to sort of help get publicity or to, um, in other ways, help help our movement to advance. And so that's what the kind of idea of the photographs is. They are kind of tools or weapons in a struggle, you might say. We're speaking with photojournalist uh, David Bacon. His uh, uh, show uh, of photographs of communities and their social justice movements opens or has opened in the main San Francisco library. It's about to open? Uh Tomorrow. It opens tomorrow. Tomorrow. Um, tomorrow at noon and at one o'clock we're going to have a, actually at one o'clock we're going to have this stellar panel which is going to be talking about what the role is of photographers and artists in relation to the border. And so we've got some of the really most important people in our movement um, talking about this. Juan Fuentes is a real celebrated hero of our of the Chicano movement. He's a graphic artist and muralist. We've got Juan Gonzalez, who started El Tecolote, which is the longest-running community newspaper in California. Um, Kim Komenich, who won a Pulitzer Prize for covering the revolution in the Philippines. Um, Mabel Jimenez, who was born in Tijuana on the border, and was a photo editor at El Tecolote. And Brooke Anderson, who many people know because she is the omnipresent movement photographer of our movement. All you have to do is go to a picket line or demonstration anywhere in the Bay Area, and you're going to see Brooke out there, you know, taking photographs. And so those are the folks who are going to be talking about this whole idea, Dennis, of why is it that our our view of the border is so one-sided? You know, it's as though Trump and the right wing have have convinced, especially the media, that the only thing of significance about the border is the wall. And the only thing that's significant about northern Mexico is drugs. And yet, you know, Tijuana is a city with a million and a half people. You know, Juarez has two million. And they are almost all workers. As you said in your introduction, the working class of, of Southern California lives on the other side of the border. There are more workers in our economy that live in Tijuana and in Mexicali and in Juarez than actually work in Los Angeles. So, you know, that just shows, that gives you an idea of how important this is. And yet it's invisible, Dennis. You know, the, if you open the pages of a mainstream newspaper, 
Um, you don't learn anything about maquiladoras. You don't learn anything about strikes or the land occupations. You know, we had 40,000 workers that went on strike in the fields of San Quintin in 2015, and it hardly made it into the pages of the papers up here. Um, and the same thing happened when when uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador became president, and 40,000 workers went on strike in the maquiladoras in Matamoros. And that didn't make it here either. So this show is kind of trying to show that the reality of living on the border as it's lived by the people who live there. And also, um, to, you know, to some degree, helping to try and present people's voices. It's a little hard as a photographer to do that. But what I do is I interview people and then I create what are called text panels where we see a picture of the person and then we hear their voice or we read, the, we read their voice. And so it's trying to sort of see through people's eyes. I'm sorry, go ahead. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. That's David Bacon, wonderful uh, movement photographer. Uh, Let me ask you the core question you're raising tomorrow. Let me ask you to respond to it. Uh, What exactly, how would you define the role of a movement photographer? How, How does that, would that be distinguished from just... Somebody who takes photographs for the public. Well, I think it's it is because as a photographer, you are committed to the movement for social justice, and that that infuses the work that you do. That you can look at the work, and and that the work itself takes part and participates in that in that movement. But it also means that as a photographer, you have relationships with the organizations and people who are fighting. For social justice in a way you are doing that too but you have relationships so you're not like a parachute person you parachute in somewhere and you take some pictures and then you go off somewhere else so you have a long-term commitment to it and so you try to develop your abilities as a photographer and um create images that are powerful and that can move people um and that have politics to them and that have a relationship with the movement that they come out of and that also get used. You know, photographs don't just exist in a vacuum. They get used for good or ill. And so the idea is that we, the photographs that we take um, get used by the movements that we're part of for all the different things that we need photographs to do, whether it's to help people tell their stories or whether it's to get publicity for a strike or a social movement or that demonstration out in front of the jury building or um, to help just sort of develop or to fight back, I guess you would say, like this exhibition, is to fight back against the racism. It's to fight back against the anti-immigrant hysteria in which you only see the border as being a, um, a wall or you know a place where um, people die. And it's true that people do die at the border. In fact, you know, some of the pictures are the Holtville graveyard where people are buried and you have these crosses that say no olvidados, which means not forgotten. Um, So we're trying to show that reality as well, too. But it is a complex reality that people live on the border. And so people are also workers and they live in communities that are called comunidades de resistencia or communities of resistance, which means that, you know, on the border, when they set up the factories, when all the big companies set up the factories and they had these pro-company governments that sort of let the companies run wild, do you think that they built any places for people to live? Of course not. So people who, had, who, who were kind of displaced by 
NAFTA and the economic reforms and so forth in, in southern Mexico and came to the border looking for work, they had to find their own places to live. And so they would occupy um, areas of land around the outside of cities and they would build up these committees of resi- communities of resistance. And they were called that because the minute you start doing setting up your home this way, um, the companies come and the uh, government comes and they basically try and throw you out and, and some kids even burn down the communities that you built and so people have to resist in order to survive just the same way as they resist inside the factory itself or they resist um, the actions of the um, local police in cooperation with the border patrol for the people who are um, wound up wind up living in the um in the refugee camps next to the border as well too all of these are communities of resistance and so the idea is to try to document this as a way of showing kind of what the social movements of the border are that it's not just people who are um ground down or exploited but that people fight back against this and so we want to show that people are active and they are resisting and that that's where power comes from, is the ability of people to organize and to fight back. You're listening to Flashpoints, and I am, we're speaking with David Bacon, and I'm glad uh, we've got a very talkative photographer, because I've had some pretty uh, unbearable interviews with one-word responses to amazing photographs. And of course, since we don't have the photograph, uh, I become very vulnerable as a radio journalist. But I know David Bacon for a long time. I love his work. Uh, It is um, really uh, an epiphany to see these photographs and to always this is 30 years of extraordinary uh, photography. Um, I, I want to sort of bring it to uh, current uh, situation and tap your knowledge in terms of have you ever, uh, David, seen it this bad, this vicious on both sides of the border? I'm thinking that that now Biden has outdone Trump uh, in terms of putting uh putting the policy on steroids and these Article 42 mass deportation where, where hundreds of people are cuffed into a plane and flown back to Haiti and they've never been there? Yeah, I mean, that's something we didn't even see under Trump. So um, I think that 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 part of our, our anger comes from the fact also that Biden promised that he was going to be, he was going to undo what Trump did. And he, instead of doing that, what he's done is he has implemented the same policies that um, Trump was implementing on the border, you know, refusing to allow people to come in and apply for asylum, refusing to reunite their families. Now there's even trouble about um, kind of making whole or, or, or making up to the families that were divided, the pain and the suffering that they went through. Um, because of what they, you know, because of their separation over the um, past years. So, yeah, yeah, I think that it is it is a very bad situation um, at the border, especially for those people who have come to the border, you know, trying basically to come to the United States, whether it's to reunite their families with families, you know, family members who are living here or simply because they people have to survive. We all have to work. We all have to survive. People know that this is um, part of you know, one way of doing it is to come here and and work. And so in, it's as though people are being punished for the crime of wanting to work and wanting to survive. And in a way, I think 
people should be honored for that because that's what that's what our world is made of is made of the work of people and to kind of punish people for coming here because people need to work i think is is one of the cruelest aspects of it is though you know what 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 the u.s government has done is it has imposed over a long period of time and this predates biden and trump and the rest of them, you know imposing on mexico especially these economic policies through trade agreements which basically cause massive poverty and displacement. You let the big corn companies dump corn on the Mexican government uh, on the Mexican market, making it impossible for corn farmers to survive in southern Mexico. People leave home; they have to find somewhere to work and to survive. They come up to the border, seeking to cross the border and to work here as farm workers. Ironically enough, and the response of our government is to say, "Hey, you know, you guys are criminals because." Um, you've come here without, you know, work authorization, or you've come here, you know, without legal status, as though legal status was something that was actually available for people to do this. So you, you know, the the policies have produced the displacement and the migration, and then they've criminalized the people. I've written books about this to talk about how this is I know know. there's so much more that's why we've been talking to you for so many years there's so much more we could talk about I'm I'm right against the clock Uh, David Bacon his exhibition for those of you listening in the San Francisco Bay Area's uh, exhibition opens tomorrow at the main branch of the public library San Francisco Public Library guest workers on farms and the it's called communities and their social justice movements. Thank you, David. Right. Stay safe. Thank you, Dennis. One o'clock Bye-bye. tomorrow. Thanks. Got the library. Bye bye. We're done. <laughs>
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We turn our attention to the battle uh, to protect uh, many community schools in Oakland, California. We've seen this battle uh, happening all over the country, closing schools always in uh, black and brown neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. Uh, and uh, it, it really is a troubling thing to see happen in the middle of a COVID when uh, kids are just coming back to school. And what a dirty trick. You're going to close a whole bunch of schools. It's a terrible situation in Oakland, California. Uh, uh, among those teachers on the front line is Maria uh, Pinier. Uh she is a TKK teacher uh, at, I guess it's STEAM and School Tech Ed at Fred uh, T. Karamatsu Discovery Academy. That's the KDA. Uh, she's been a teacher for 10 years. Six of those years have been at KDA. Uh, Maria, welcome to Flashpoints. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good uh, of you to join us. Let me ask you to um, write what's at the core for you. What's this battle about? What are you fighting for? And then I want to ask you about your school and and, and what's going on. But but what's the motivating force here? Well, the top priority for me is just seeing how racist, classist, and ableist the the list that was put together is so it's really a fight for um the soul of oakland many of these schools have been a part of oakland for years um and they serve primarily black and brown populations so it's it's not just about our school it's really about all the schools on the list so that's what what's really motivating me to get more active um i'm not really someone who who goes out talking a lot to to people but um this this has really um motivated me to get out there uh, talk a little bit about uh, what are the students thinking? I mean, God, after all the COVID stuff, uh, I'm wondering this is a, a tough struggle. What's been going on with the students in the context of having their schools shut down? Yes, I, I mean, I teach the, the youngest students in the, the elementary setting, and our students really feel this. They've been asking, like, I don't want our school to close down. What's going to happen to me? I don't want to go to this school or that school. What, what's going to happen to you? Um, so students have really been feeling it. And in the last few days since the vote came out, um, a lot of our first through third graders have been dealing with high anxiety. There's been a lot of breakdowns, a lot of crying, um, just a lot of questions around what's, what is going to happen. And, you know, they, they understand, even though a lot of times they get underestimated, students of this age really do understand what's happening. They have a lot of questions. They have a lot of anxiety coming out of a time where we're all having anxiety with with the pandemic and it has affected especially district seven popula um, populations even more heavily. So this is just another thing to throw on their plate. Wow. We're speaking with Maria Panier. Uh, she is a teacher in Oakland. Your school uh, is being threatened. What's the justification? Tell us a little bit about your school and uh, how they explain it's time to just shut it down. 
that's that's the part that really upsets me even more was because when the list came out their original justification was that small schools are too expensive to run and they also in in their own um parent square messages which is a messaging app they send out information they said that small schools cannot be community schools and that they cannot provide a high level of education and and what I've seen at, at my school and several of the schools on the list is that is absolutely not the case. Our school is a complete wraparound services where families rely on for um, financial support, mental health support, um, just connections with community partnerships. Um, we have several health and well-being services on our campus. Um, and also just the justification that it was small schools only. And then the amendment, the surprise amendment from directors Davis and Ang came out. And it just seems very subjective of which schools were taken off the list while leaving almost the entirety of Deep East and East Oakland schools still on the list. So that was um, a huge contradiction argument and really upset our our population because it it just seemed completely subjective with no care for any type of data or real response and reasoning many of davis's responses when asked that question were i feel statements i feel like this school was doing a great job of this or i feel like this school a lot of people want to go there but not providing any real data for example our school has been exceeding its enrollment projections despite um, some interesting enrollment practices. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, and we're talking about the uh, closing, the decision to close a whole bunch of important uh, community schools. I, now, I, I really, I, I had to uh, take a double take and flinch twice uh, when you mentioned the idea that small schools <laughs> don't work. Um, I am, I do have about 15 years teaching experience, and I know small schools and small classes work. You know, I, how many times have I heard, you know, you can't just throw money at these things. Really? Well, you seem to, there are certain schools you can throw money at. Uh, mm -hmm. But, it, it, you know, money's not the only answer, uh, but you need to support community schools. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a bizarre point of view that big is beautiful. Is that the point? Yes, and that, and that does not follow decades of research on the topic. Um, if we look at big with you know, uh, populations, uh, we look at and disaggregate that data. Black and brown students are usually the ones left out. In a small school setting, we have more of a chance to really get to know our students, get to know our families, build that community, and really get at the heart of what their passions are to help build their interests. And a lot of learning can happen, which our school is proof of that. We have been growing in our in our um, academic data, like on the SBAC, for example, pre pre COVID. Wow, 
Um, tell us where the struggle is now. There's There's been protests. Uh, there are actually uh, two teachers who are now uh, hunger striking. Are they still uh, on that hunger strike? Yes, and they have released a list of demands, and they said that they would end. I, I was at the East Oakland Town Hall the other night, and they um, said that they would end their hunger strike immediately if their first two demands were met, which are to meet with Governor Newsom, for him to come to Oakland and meet with them, and for Superintendent Kyla johnson Trammell and the entirety of the OUSD school board to meet with them, which seems a pretty easy top two request to meet. And I think that could be the bare minimum with all of this process happening in such a short amount of time, 10 days. <laughs> I think the least they could do is at least meet with the hunger strikers who are putting their bodies on the line for our students and for our schools. Could you talk a little bit uh, about the reasons why you became a teacher and uh, let us know if um, do you feel like maybe you've got to do something else now or do you feel that teaching is what it's all about? Well, I, I got into teaching um, 10 years, well, I guess before that when I was starting my uh, university and I, I've been able, I've been lucky to um, travel and teach. So I've taught in a, a few different continents and I just really grew a love for um, diverse mindsets and really bringing an open mindedness to education and learning from students while also um, teaching students. And so I, I mean, earlier this year, if you would have asked me, I, I would have told you that I would have wanted to stay in education until um, I had to retire. I actually turned down a teacher on special assignment position this year to remain in the classroom. And honestly, all of this has really shaken my belief in the educational system. I plan to stay in education 100% as long as Korematsu Discovery Academy is open and our community is together. Um, but if, if they go ahead with closing all of these schools, and I, I just want to lift up Community Day, and they're, that's an expulsion school and literally can mean the difference between life and death. And our district chose the side of possibly death for these students. So, I mean, that's that's very hard to to be able to be okay with that. If, if this goes ahead, I I, I definitely question staying in Oakland 100% and question the entirety of the educational system if I wanted to be a part of it. Wow. Well, uh, that's sad, but I, I do appreciate the situation and your commitment to the kids. It's not easy to be a teacher, and most good teachers find the, uh, themselves spending a good chunk of their own salary to create the resources uh, that you need, oftentimes uh, having to elude uh, and set aside racist textbooks. And um, if you really yeah. care about... Uh, uh, educating your kids, you, you've got to, sometimes you just got to make it up uh, from scratch. Here comes Howard Zinn, you know what I mean? And you're reading yeah. late into the night, but that's that's what teachers do. They really try, the, the good ones really try and educate. You know, it's not a matter of uh, when did 
Columbus discover America, but did he? Anyway, um, uh, and, you know, uh, down that line. Anyway, um, talk about what you're asking people to do, how they might find uh, more information about what parents who are listening uh, in the area uh, in Oakland. Um, Oh, I have to ask you, are you concerned, troubled that your mayor has sort of led the charge for the close of these schools? Um, no, I, I think that's a message that uh, they're really trying to push here is um, that that they're doing this because they want to retain and attract teachers with a higher salary. And I can tell you with 100% certainty, I do not know one teacher that wants a salary increase on the backs of our students. That's just an absurd argument um that nobody wants that i mean we we see what our teachers unions are doing what our city is doing um in opposition to this so i mean i think i think that argument just makes makes no and and how can yeah good thank you and what is the mayor saying is she for closing these schools, or has she taken a strong stand against closing the schools? That That's actually been another thing that has been very upsetting to me um, because I, I have had a, a personal relationship with uh, the mayor through Oakland Promise. I'm a, gov- I'm a governing board member of Oakland Promise, and even Oakland Promise has come out in stark opposition to school closures and um, hearing her comments on the news about maybe we should just let this go ahead and see what happens is, is deeply upsetting. Um, no, we should not go ahead. and This isn't an experiment and our students are not to be experimented with. This is their life and there's, there's really no excuse for that. And I, and I hope she um, retracts that statement. Well, uh, well, uh, what comes next for you? Are, are the protests going to continue? Do you think there's going to be a battle or, or is this uh, a foregone conclusion that people are not are going to lose their schools? What do you think? Where I, is I this think going? This, this is definitely a strong, a strong fight. Um, I want to also lift up uh, reparations for black students. They have been leading a lot of this work. Um, and so I really want to lift up them. And I've, I've really been following their lead on different events that are taking place, um, protests. Our school did an art build as well. And we actually led a unity march through through East Oakland and joined with a, um, a couple of other schools on the way. And those, those things will continue. In preliminary polls and conversations with families at our site, um, most of them desperately want to stay at 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 Korematsu Discovery Academy and they have no desire to change schools our staff also wants to stay and plans to fight the decision and um, that seems to be the sentiment of the sentiment at at every site that I've spoken to people really want to fight this um, state legislation is is being put forth by uh, Mia Bonta and I've been happy to see um, Rob Bonta's statement about AB 1840 and just kind of the 
the twisted nature of how people are using this. Personally, on our site, um, Dr. Karen Korematsu, uh, Fred T. Korematsu's daughter, has also come out through the Korematsu Institute in opposition of, of school closures. So I think the fight is nice. really just the... The fight is on. The fight is on yes. uh, for yes. uh, for these wonderful schools that need to stay open, uh, and the people in these communities need to be respected. And of course, uh, this is happening. Uh, variations on a theme all over the country. Have you heard from any other school districts? Any activists? Are you sharing uh, information with other folks in other parts of uh, the state and the country? Yes, um, I don't. I don't know all the the details of of kind of what's being said between union leadership, um, but I know that there there's a lot of um, support for Oakland right now, and also um, looking to Oakland as as to what to do in these cases. Um, we've also been looking to New Orleans and Chicago um, because nobody nobody that I know in public education wants. Oakland to become a portfolio district. Um, that's I think that's a dangerous road in privatization. So um, I know a lot of uh, teachers unions are, are kind of getting together to to look at what can be done to protect our um, black and brown schools. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to leave it right there. But we thank you so much uh, for speaking with us. And we hope you'll come back. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. All right, stay safe. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. It is Friday, and we're done for the week. We'll talk to you on Monday. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.